Welcome to Lit with Charles, a podcast on all things literary where I interview people who've either written books or have interesting things to say about them. If you're like me, then you love reading, but maybe you're not sure what you should be reading or maybe you feel intimidated by conversations around books. The main aim of this podcast is to make literature exciting and accessible and hopefully make you discover new books and authors that are off the beaten track. In this podcast, I try to cover all genres and types of books, from serious historical nonfiction to trashy novels, and I talk to all sorts of authors so that it never feels like the same episode twice. What's important to consider is that because of democracy, the patrons of art are people like you and me. We vote with our feet or we vote with our hashtags. And so I think that uh, the patronage of art has now become something that is no longer just the preserve of presidents and popes, etc. We are the patrons of art. What makes art art? Who decides what is art? And who gets a seat at the table to decide what gets shown and what doesn't get shown? If there's anyone qualified to talk intelligently about these questions and this extremely nebulous topic intelligently, it is my guest today, journalist and author Farah Nayeri, who's recently written the excellent book, Take Down, Art and Power in the Digital Age. Currently, she's a culture writer for the New York Times, and over the course of her illustrious career, she's worked with some of the most prestigious publications around. She's been a reporter at Time Magazine, a contributor at the Wall Street Journal, an arts correspondent for Bloomberg. It's no stretch of the imagination to say that Farah has interviewed the biggest names in visual art today. Her book, Takedown, is a fascinating overview of some of the most difficult questions currently being asked. What should we be doing about culturally valuable works from problematic artists? Are the demographics of the industry Historically, a hotbed of old, straight, white men changing fast enough. How can practitioners tread the line between appreciation and appropriation? It's a brilliant introduction to a business that many of us don't know nearly enough about. Farah's balanced, nuanced, and extremely insightful takes invite you through the big issues, synthesizing many years of industry expertise and deep reflection into a steady, easy to follow, and curiosity-inspiring package. In today's episode, Farah and I cover a huge range of topics. Amongst other things, we discuss the dynamics of art and power, whether modern audiences are less shockable than their forebears, and how institutions are changing in a post-Black Lives Matter and Me Too universe, along with a snapshot into her literary tastes and recommendations. I'm here today with Farah Nayeri, a journalist from the New York Times and author of the book, Take Down, Art and Power in the Digital Age. Good morning, Farah. How are you? Good morning, Charles. How are you? I'm very well. Very excited to be speaking about your book and to find out more about it. It's a very insightful investigation into the power dynamics of the art world. And I think let's begin with you telling us a little bit about yourself, your background, and how you came to write this book. I grew up kind of in the Middle East and North Africa as a kid. I was born in London, but we moved around a lot because of my father's diplomatic career. I lived in Morocco, Egypt, Iran as a kid. And then after the revolution, we moved to Paris, where I lived for almost 20 years, uh, where I studied, went to university, etc. 
and then later on became a journalist. And, you know, I've been a journalist uh, since then, worked for various, mainly American media organizations. But I mean, I'm one of those people who I've always known what I want. And I know that, that that's a kind of blessing because it's not always possible in life to know what we want, but I always did. And so I pursued this thing and became a journalist. And Writing has always been a big deal for me. It's something that I, uh, that I love and that I've always pursued with passion. And, you know, of course I did it through journalism, but ultimately I also wanted to write a book. And so I finally managed after many years of trying to, um, publish various books through various agents. I finally got there and last year I published Takedown. Congratulations. And Thank so. You. Why was this first book focused on the art world? Uh, what about that topic made you feel that there was some urgency? And it seems that there is some urgency to writing about it. Why did you pick specifically that topic rather than any other? Basically, I've been covering art for the last couple of decades, actually. Um, I was at Bloomberg for many long years and, and originally, you know, covering politics and economic policy and the birth of the euro and stuff like that. But then latterly I started, they started a culture team. And so I joined that team and I wrote about culture for, well, a decade actually. Through that, I became very much enthralled by, you know, a subject that I was already really fascinated by, which is museums and art. And so I, I started writing all the time about art, museums, et cetera. And then when I left Bloomberg, I started doing that for the New York Times. And uh, so I have been writing about culture and mainly visual arts for a long time. And uh, I wrote a story about Gauguin and how Gauguin was going to be perceived in the Weinstein era, post-Weinstein, you know, the fact that he took up, as you know, with 13, 14-year-old girls, that he actually married, quote-unquote, a couple of them. I wrote an article saying, you know, what does Gauguin look like in this post-Me Too kind of era or in this Me Too era? And that article sort of went viral. And I was approached by an agent who said, do you want to do a kind of book along these themes? And the answer was yes. Because it does seem that the art world is undergoing some pretty profound changes, much needed changes. In your opinion, are the demographics of art, the participants in the art world, changing fast enough to reflect social changes relative, let's say, to the wider corporate world? Do you feel the art world is lagging in becoming more modern in terms of representation and, and other issues like that? I think it's definitely not lagging in terms of representation any longer. And I think what I argue in the book is that these movements that we've had, hashtag Me Too and then Black Lives Matter, have had an absolutely seismic impact on the art world. They completely, they've been almost like a revolution because gender was not properly represented in the past. I mean, women have been almost all but erased up until really quite recently, I mean, you really didn't get to see major exhibitions of women, solo exhibitions of women. And now look at, you know, the Royal Academy of Arts, where in London, where we both live, they only just gave a solo exhibition to a woman in their main galleries for the first time in 255 years. That's shocking when you put it like that. And yeah. you just don't realize how backward yeah. that sounds. Exactly. So in your book, which looks at art and power, it is a complicated dynamic in the way these two things coexist. Power has historically been the force that commissions the art and the art to a certain extent more recently has maybe had a task of criticizing power. How does that dynamic exist and how does it continue to evolve? 
I think that dynamic has always been a tense one because um, artists need money. Artists need money to survive, so they always needed paymasters. And the paymasters used to be popes and kings and queens, and then later dictators, as it happened, or you know, leaders of states. And I think that there has always been this tension because the artist wants to go off and do whatever they want to do and <laughs> be free to express themselves. And the dictator or the pope or the whoever it is don't want them to go off and do something crazy and do something embarrassing and show too much nudity. And there have been tensions and blow-ups between artists and patrons throughout history. And I think nowadays, I think what's important to consider is that because of democracy, and this is what I argue in the book, because of democracy, the patrons of art are people like you and me, because we are taxpayers, we cast votes, and museums are mostly, in, in Europe anyway, funded with tax money. And so we get to sort of pronounce ourselves through social media or through visits or through demonstrations or whichever way, pronounce ourselves for or against, you know, we vote with our feet or we vote with our hashtags. And so I think that uh, the patronage of art has now become very democratic and it's become something that is no longer just the preserve of presidents and popes, etc. We are the patrons of art. And I think that there's still tension, but I would argue it's a healthy tension because it's basically democracy and, you know, if someone is disturbed by an artwork, they have the right to express that. And, you know, sometimes it takes the form of, you know, calls for destruction of an artwork and it goes way too far. But democracy and one person, one vote means that we are now the patrons of the art in the Western world. My next question is sort of in two parts. The first part might be, is one of the core functions of art to shock or stun or awaken certain sensibilities, even if that inflames passions and calls for bans. And the second part of the question is, has the general public, which as you rightly point out, is now the main patron of the art world, is the general public less shocked and less shockable than in the past? In your book, you outline some things that in the past were absolutely shocking. And I'm thinking of Robert Mapplethorpe, for example, which in the 80s was, you know, initiating a lot of gay iconography, male bodies and so on. And it was just completely shocking, especially to a more right-wing element of the political spectrum. Today, you look at Mapplethorpe and you think, well, that's pretty average. You know, we've seen a lot of it. I think we've been inured to that art form. So are we less shockable today? And is shock a fundamental aspect of the creation of art? I don't know that shock is a fundamental aspect. There are artists that have, you know, introduced shock value in their art. Marcel Duchamp, as you know, in, uh, you know, about a hundred years ago, uh, was, um, invited to participate in a art exhibition in New York. And he went to a shop and he bought a urinal and he submitted the urinal. The urinal was not exhibited in the exhibition and, but it has become one of the most important objects in the history of art. And, that's basically Duchamp saying, if I decide something is art, I being the artist, and I put it in a context that is art, then that object does become art. And Duchamp's concept, which is called conceptual art, as it were, that concept continues to this day. And, and there have been many British artists, for instance, who in more recent years, such as Damien Hirst, have taken a shark and pickled it and put it in formaldehyde and displayed it in a gallery and said, this is art. So it's the same sort of concept. And these obviously artworks did shock 
at the time. But nowadays, it's really hard to shock people because Maplethorpe and those images of male erotica, I mean, that sort of stuff is available to any kid with a smartphone that, you know, the parent hasn't controlled. I mean, I think that shock has become really a lot less of a factor because our mentalities have progressed because societies have advanced. The one thing, however, that I would argue is now shocking in a way as it should be in a way that it wasn't before is any kind of display of nudity or inappropriate images of children. And yet, is it conceivable to imagine that one day one artist will push against that boundary, push against that taboo and as Marcel Duchamp said, claim it to be art and then we'll be in a whole new debate? No, I mean, I think that's already been done. I mean, if you look at a, a painter like Balthus, you know, who, who up until recently was getting major retrospectives from museums like the Pompidou and others, I think Balthus was always sort of playing with the threshold between childhood and adolescence in young girls. And as you know, there are a lot of paintings by Balthus where you see young girls who... who In provocative poses. or Yes, in provocative poses, including one at the Metropolitan Museum, which right after the Weinstein scandal broke, there was a petition against. There was a petition against that because you see this young girl and she's sitting on a bench and she's wearing a skirt, one leg up on the bench, and you can see her white underwear. And there was this petition by a female professional in New York arguing that this was inappropriate and that it should be taken down. Metropolitan Museum did not take the work down. The work is still on display at the Met. But I think that an artist such as Balthus has become more problematic. At least those images about by Balthus, those of pictures he did, have become problematic. And I would prepare to argue that no museum nowadays would give Balthus a retrospective. That's my personal feeling. I'm interested if you could share with our listeners some of the stories that best illustrate how galleries and critics have approached great works, artistically valuable works from problematic artists. Are there some key examples that you could share with us right now? Yes, there are a couple. One is Gauguin, which is at the origin, who is at the origin of my book, funnily enough. And as I was explaining to you in the aftermath of the Weinstein scandal, it sort of became awkward to show Gauguin without mentioning the fact that he had married on two occasions, two Tahitian girls, according to local custom, and they were 13 or 14. Meanwhile, he was himself a European man married to a woman in Europe, and they had five children. Mm -hmm. So there were all kinds of- There's a very intersectional set of problems here of colonialism plus pedophilia plus adultery. Yes, all of that is there. And so up until now, Gauguin has been one of the great blockbuster artists of our time. I mean, I personally had seen, I don't know how many Gauguin retrospectives between London, Paris, and elsewhere, and, you know, found his work absolutely marvelous and was absolutely enchanted. And by the way, I remain enchanted by the work of Gauguin. I'm not going to see it differently. But Nobody really got into this aspect of things. Post Me Too, it became obvious to museum directors putting on Gauguin shows that they somehow had to address this elephant in the room. And they did. And the National Gallery in London put on a show, Gauguin Portraits, and right there on the entrance wall, 
you saw in big letters, you know, Gauguin had sexual relations with 13, 14 year old girls, and he took advantage of his colonial status to step outside the mark, as it were. Mm, And mm. then the other example where museums have reacted very, very almost by self-censoring is that there was supposed to be a few years ago, an exhibition of Philip Guston. I think it was a case of museum directors showing extreme, you know, heightened sensitivity to the times we live in. Obviously, the Guston exhibition was going to be programmed in the aftermath of Black Lives Matter, another movement that shook the world and whose consequences are definitely being felt. And there was a fear among the directors of the National Gallery of Art in Washington that if they put this show on, the fact that Philip Guston was portraying these figures wearing pointy hats that really did look like Ku Klux Klan hats, and that he kind of almost portrayed himself as complicit in racism and in bigotry in America, that these images were going to upset people. And so the National Gallery of Art and Tate Modern and the other museum that was going to show this Guston retrospective, they suddenly announced, no, we're going to call it off. And there was a huge, huge outcry in the art world. Mm. And everyone explained that this was already in the catalog text. It was in the press releases. Everyone had already gone to great lengths to explain that Guston was actually denouncing racism and bigotry and the horrors of the Ku Klux Klan Mm. by depicting these little figures. And that this was not a case of, you know, horrendous um, glorification. Yeah, glorification of racists or anything. So what happened was the exhibition got postponed. And as you know, it's currently on at Tate Modern and it's absolutely magnificent. It's an extraordinary show. People are going to see it and um, there is no outcry. So it was a very sensitive time and the optics were just not great at that specific moment in time. Yeah, that's right. And I think the museums were self-censoring in a way. They were kind of being overly cautious and anticipating a reaction that may not have actually occurred. And I think that the solution to this, as I found by speaking to people for my book, is that you need to have a very diverse staff. Before you go out there with your exhibition, you need to run it past your staff. You need to actually consult people and have people from all walks of life, from all social classes, from all backgrounds, including nationalities and ethnic backgrounds, And had they kind of had this consultation with a diverse staff, I think perhaps the staffers would have said, well, you know, we're not disturbed by this, or we are disturbed, or something else disturbs us. So how far along do you think the art world has come in terms of the backstage? The front of the stage, we're seeing newer faces, new demographics, and so on. But as you just pointed out, the backstage also needs to change uh, in terms of the demographics. Do you think that's come far enough in your opinion and what you see? Or is that lagging because it's easier to put things at the front and harder to change them at the back? No, I mean, I do see a a very, very major push for diversity and gender balance in museums across the Western world. I mean, in some places more than others, certainly in places like America and Britain, you are seeing that a great deal you know, every time there's an appointment, there are so many women now being appointed to the, the directorships of the world's greatest museums for the first time ever in history. I mean, I recently profiled for the New York Times, the first female president of the Louvre, 
Laurence Descartes, and she was previously at Musée d'Orsay in Paris. This woman, who is uh, very impressive, is the very first woman ever in the history of humankind to be running the Louvre. Again, there are so many firsts. You would have expected these firsts to have been broken a few decades ago, at least. Yeah. Like when I was talking to the artist Sonia Boyce, who's, um, she was the first Black British female artist to represent Britain at the Venice Biennale. And I said, oh, isn't this great? You're the first, etc." She says, yes, but this whole business of being first, you know, it's a little bit of a double-edged sword. Because why am I the first? And that is a question that needs to be asked. And But to be fair, I think there is a great deal of movement and action, and I don't think we're going to go back to the way things were before. I just mm -hmm. don't see that happening. There are some people who say, oh, yeah, we've seen it before. It's a flash in the pan. But as Anne Temkin of MoMA says in the epilogue to my book, the genie is out of the bottle. In terms of the function of art as a medium for exchange and evolution and reflection of society, There are instances in your book where you highlight examples of appropriation. And so that's another aspect that artists have to be careful about. Can you highlight some examples from your book on things where that went very wrong? I think of Dana Schutz and the whole Emmett Till incident. What are some of the parameters of that discussion in your mind around appropriation versus appreciation? Well, I mean, in the Dana Schutz case, in all fairness to Dana Schutz, who's an artist I've met, she is a delightful, very sensitive and very soft-spoken artist who happens to be white American. She's of Jewish descent, but she's a mother, she's empathetic, and in the wake of the Black Lives Matter movement, or as those protests, as a lot of young black men were being basically murdered or killed unnecessarily, one after the other, She just felt so upset by this. And being a mother herself, she also heard this name Emmett Till. And Emmett Till, as you know, was a 14-year-old boy who in the 1950s, somewhere in the South in Tennessee, I believe, he walked into a grocery store run by a couple and the wife was, you know, sitting behind the counter. And he said, made some teasing remark. And she basically went and told her husband that he had frightened her and that he had harassed her and that he flirted with her, et cetera, whatever it was. And these, you know, the husband and his brother, I believe, they go after Emmett Till, they grab him, they kill him and lacerate his body. And so this body is then displayed in an open coffin by Emmett Till's mother in Chicago, I believe it was, because that's where he was from originally. And Emmett Till has become the sort of like emblem or mascot of the black struggle, of the struggle for freedom and the struggle against injustice against young black males. And she portrayed that open casket in a semi-abstract painting. And this upset an African-American young activist, artist, this very, very bright and very talented young man named Parker Bright. And Parker went to the Whitney where this was shown, and he had a very peaceful protest with a t-shirt with slogans, and he stretched his arms out, standing in front of the painting. He didn't disturb anyone. He didn't make any noise. He was just speaking to visitors and saying, what do you think of this? There was It was just a very peaceable action. And he streamed it live on Facebook. 
And then that was seized upon by another artist uh, over in Europe called Hannah Black. And she started a petition and, you know, basically turned it into something a lot more incendiary and, and demanded that the work of art by Dana Schutz be destroyed. This became a cause celebre, and the Whitney said, we are not going to take down the painting. Parker Bright, the original protester, actually had meetings with the directors of the Whitney and came out saying, well, I had a very good dialogue with them. So this was all a very, very peaceful protest. But I think the issue there is that the museum, meaning the Whitney, the curators of Whitney wanted to be current, wanted to show this image of Emmett Till as a way of being contemporary and being in tune with the times. Mm. But to the black community in America, this was the very first mainstream artwork inspired by Emmett Till ever to have been done. And it was done by an artist who was not black. So, you know, there are sensitivities on both sides, there are contexts. And again, it's very difficult to be preachy about this because it's very complicated business. But Perhaps if the curators of the Whitney had consulted once again with members of the African-American community or within their staff or with others, I mean, perhaps this painting would have been shown in a different way, maybe in the company, a different painting by an African-American artist or the intentions are not bad. I mean, there were no ill intentions Mm. on any side of this, you know, certainly not on the side of the protester and not on the side of the museum and its curators. but. I think dialogue is just absolutely key. And I think that's the, the, the real message of this book. Every time there is a clash or a misunderstanding or a conflict, one realizes that had there been dialogue at the start of this, this wouldn't have happened. Let's talk about the sources of funding in the art world, which are part of your book. As we said at the beginning of the interview, Powerful popes and kings used to pay for stuff. Now it's other sources of funding, including the taxpayer, but also including some private funding. Whether it's public funding or private funding, there have been issues. For example, public taxpayer money is often offended by stuff like obscenity, driven probably by the Christian right. But then there are private funders like, say, the Sacklers, who are behind the OxyContin scandal, who have create a whole host of problems for galleries, not least of which to erase their name from the gallery. How does the art world navigate that and and come out of that episode? That's a different challenge. It's not the artists directly, it's the museums and the institutions who desperately need funding. And they are in very, very difficult circumstances now because government funding is being cut everywhere in Europe. In in America, it doesn't really exist. Mm. So private funding is really contingent on, you know, the ups and downs of the stock market and how markets are doing or how somebody's finances are doing. And so basically, museums and cultural institutions right now find themselves in the very difficult position of having to really do due diligence to a point they've never done before of everything that any donor has ever invested in. Because if a donor in 25 years ago invested in something untoward, then, you know, this could be revealed and et cetera, et cetera. And there have been cases of, you know, people losing their jobs or people stepping down from institutions because of their own investments or their husband's investments or Mm. whatnot. And so I think that museum funding has become very, very challenging because of the ethics of the art world nowadays. 
At one point in the book, I say that the art world nowadays is dominated by the three E's, which I've come up with, equality, ethics, and ecology. And it's hard to be respectful of those three E's, but they have to be. Even though some of the major donors, as you point out in the book, for example, BP is very much against the third E of ecology. But so, right. so under this pressure, how do you think the museums are adapting their curatorial activities, if at all? Is pressure on the funding of rejecting BP funding, for example, of rejecting SACRA funding, is that impacting their choices? Is that impacting the way they present art, in your opinion? Not yet, because I mean, you know, I think that they do manage always to go out and find alternatives. Museums are able to go out and find alternative sources of funding, but it's becoming more challenging. The funding might have come in the past from one corporate sponsor, let's say BP. Now you have to go and find five sponsors to make up for, or 10. Mm -hmm. The money comes in smaller slices. So uh, fundraising has become more difficult because of this level of scrutiny. But unfortunately, it's not something that can be avoided because you can't have an unethical sponsor. Talking about money, art prices have soared in recent years. Massive records continue to be broken. How does that impact the power dynamics in the art world? Okay, so the serious money is really paid for a very small sliver of artists, the artists who are, you know, called blue chip, the artists who are sort of ruling the roost, who are all the way at the very top of the totem pole. And I think that so far, there's always been a tension between art and money. You know, there was tension before, as we were discussing, and there's tension now, because if you're an artist and you need to supply art to a mega gallery, and this mega gallery needs to supply art to a absolutely multiplying population of billionaires across the world mm. because billionaires have multiplied in recent times. So because there are so many more billionaires and because they all want to show I'm at the top of my game by hanging art around their house and hanging art by a select, let's say 20 artists, the same 20 that everybody wants, the galleries are growing exponentially galleries are opening branches all over the world to serve these multiplying billionaires. But the galleries are there then going to those artists and saying, I need work, you know, I need supply. And so the artist gallerist collector sort of relationship has probably become a little bit more awkward than it used to be. I mean, art is something spontaneous. It is creation. It's not a factory producing bars of soap. This is a human being producing elements of their genius and artistic creativity. So I think that that tension, that that pressure has risen. And I fear that this is having an impact on the quality of some of the art we're seeing. But how does that impact the need for demographic changes in the art world? If you've got these mega powerful collectors dealing with mega powerful galleries and mega powerful artists, how does that impact the possibilities of improving representation in the art world? I think representation is not at fault here because basically what's happened is in the last few years since Me Too and Black Lives Matter, female artists are now hot and African-American and black artists are now a big deal. Their prices have been soaring. If you were at the recent Paris Plus by Art Basel show or fair in Paris, one of the highest priced items 
to be sold was a painting by the African-American artist, Carrie James Marshall. It sold for $6 million. Mm-hmm. And that was announced on the first day of the fair. Hmm. Carrie James Marshall is one of the greatest painters alive, bar none. You don't even need to qualify it. He's one of the great painters of our time. But he spent the better part of his career not having this kind of recognition because in those days we weren't recognizing artists who were, you know, African American to the degree that we do now. So there is representation, but it means that the hard artists or the most wanted artists are now women, also women and also African American, but it doesn't change the fact that then there are all these other artists who are perhaps not getting as much attention. It is a little bit skewed. I mean, in terms of it being a level playing field, I don't think it is a level playing field. I think that the winner takes all. I mean, it's a winner takes all kind of at the top. And we're talking the artworks that are getting the headlines. Then there's the rest of the art world where like mid-sized galleries are suffering incredibly. There have been so many that have had to shut down. You know, so it works. You know, the art world is functioning very well at the small end. You know, the edgy, small galleries, those, there are some in London that are just phenomenal. They're introducing incredible, great young talents, and they're very, very exciting and interesting. And then you've got the mega galleries showing you the artists that we've all heard of. Mm -hmm. But then all that middle part is suffering a great deal. I'm curious with regard to the book, what research, what stories, episodes in the art world didn't make it into the book? Is there anything that lay on the cutting room floor and you thought, I wish I could include it, but actually for any reason, we're not going to include in the book? No, there isn't. It's all in there. It's all in there. And I think what kind of heartens me is that I keep getting examples that would, you know, fit into a second edition, if there were to be another edition of the book. You know, there are examples and case studies that are constantly validating the arguments made in the book. For instance, what I was saying to you earlier, the fact the Royal Academy is giving Marina Abramovich this exhibition in its great galleries, and she is the first woman in 255 years, is a complete validation of the argument I make in the beginning chapters of my book, where I say women have been invisible for most of art history. I see solo exhibitions of women all the time in ways that one never would have seen before. At the Fondation Vuitton in Paris, I think it was last year, the extraordinary American abstract expressionist painter, her name is Joan Mitchell, who is so talented that truly her talent is on a par with Jackson Pollock. Mm, This woman was just a, a painter of phenomenal genius and talent. She moved to France and she had a different trajectory. Well, Joan Mitchell was paired with Claude Monet in an exhibition at the Fondation Vuitton in Paris. Wow. That would never, ever have happened even 10 years ago. So we're seeing some positive movement in that direction. I think it's time for our quick question section where I ask you about your literary tastes and work. The first question I have for you is what future projects, literary or otherwise, are you currently working on? Well, actually, uh, funny you should mention, I had a, a call yesterday with my literary agent in New York because it's time for me to write a second book. There we go. <laughs> and so what are what are some of the ideas you have around that? I don't really know. I can't really discuss it because right now we're just really in the brainstorming phases. But it will probably be something about the nexus of art and money. 
Mm-hmm. That uh, seems to be a subject that one can <laughs> write a lot about, I think. Right. And then the other thing that I wanted to mention that I'm about to relaunch is my podcast. Uh-huh. My podcast is called Culture Blast. I basically started it a few years ago because I was interviewing extraordinary people. And because I'm a print journalist, I would use many quotes in, in an article, but you couldn't hear their voice mm. and you couldn't sit in on the interview. And uh, I remember it, having lunch with a museum director once and he said, you're just so lucky you get to spend 90 minutes or two hours with David Hockney alone in a room mm. or with whoever, you know, and I thought, wow. yeah, I mean, it's true. And how can I bring people in? So I said, oh, I want to do a podcast. And that... It's been a very successful podcast because I, I go after major names. It's very difficult. I don't have them on speed dial, so it takes me a long time. But I've had people like, um, well, my first guest, uh, very generous first guest was Emma Thompson. Mm-hmm. I have spoken to uh, Niall Rogers, to Nan Golden, Charlotte Gainsbourg, Ai Weiwei, Elif Shafak, the Turkish novelist. Wayne McGregor, the choreographer, mm. you know, so I, I that's try a to huge kind of, landscape of cultural uh, leaders. I mean, that's the idea is to include a lot of different disciplines and not just visual arts. I, I really, you know, it's books, dance, you know, you name it. In terms of your literary tastes, what's your favorite book that I probably haven't heard of? Venice is a fish. I've never heard of it. Okay. So this man is a Venetian and his name is Tiziano Scarpa. Basically, he's writing this absolutely charming and to die for short memoir of growing up in Venice and the, the sort of tiny nooks and crannies of Venice that, wow. that us tourists wouldn't have, wouldn't have heard of. I mean, I love Venice. I'm sure you do. Everybody does. Of course. But there is a universe we don't know in Venice that only the Venetians know. Yeah. I mean, he says, oh, and when you, if you're looking at the Palace of the Doge, there is this particular sort of gargoyle or, or a relief, bar relief where you see a husband and wife and they're mm. climbing into bed. It's also kind of slightly, sexy. I mean, he's got all kinds of little secrets about Venice and I can't recommend it more. I was sent it in English, but I I also have it in Italian. Great recommendation. Thank you, Farah. I'll read it ahead of my next visit to Venice. Next question. What's the best book that you've read in the last 12 months? David Smith. It is the biography of the great American sculptor, David Smith. And tell me about that book. So this book is by a man who is basically one of my mentors. He is a great American art historian. He was living and teaching in Paris, which is how I met him when I was an adolescent. He then went on to become the New York Times art critic, and he is a very, very prominent American scholar, art historian. He taught at Bard. And he spent, I don't know, maybe 20 years, if not longer, on this book. Gosh. David Smith who's got these massive works in iron and metal. He's extremely well-known, but they're also extremely distinctive. And the thing that makes this biography so special is that he has painstakingly researched every single sentence of it, and yet it reads like a story. You read it, and it's like it's a story that flows. Oh, those are the best biographies. Yes, absolutely. 
sometimes biographers make the story flow by making things up or cutting corners. Mm. Not Michael. Well, sometimes they, uh, the, the other issue I have with biographies sometimes is they go too deep in the detail. And so yeah. he had tea at the Ritz and it cost him £12.50 and that £12.50 he got from the ATM across the street. And it's like, well, <laughs> I'd like a bigger picture. <laughs> Fantastic. Thank you for that recommendation. What single book would you take to a desert island? I think that it would be Proust à la recherche du temps perdu. Oh, that's a great answer. <laughs> You'd have all the time in the world just to read it page by page, leisurely. Yeah. yeah. I like that. What book changed your mind? Empire Land by Satnam Sanghera. Okay, so Satnam Sanghera is, um, I think, of Bangladeshi origin. He's British and he, he grew up here and he was a highly talented and I think he went to Oxford or Cambridge. So he's now become a very, very uh, prominent and important commentator on, you know, post-colonial Britain. I've come across writers or commentators on post-colonial Britain or post-colonial whatever, France or any of those places. And sometimes it gets a little bit worthy. You know, sometimes I find that these books are a bit dull because I know exactly what they're going to say. Yes, the colonialism was awful and it was terrible, etc. But I think what I found very, very interesting and sort of thought-provoking in Empire Land is that Satnam Sanghera, in my mind, is not vindictive. He doesn't have a sort of vindictive style, mm. which would make his book tiresome and predictable. He's not vindictive. He's kind of almost quite level-headed, and in some senses, even one could say fair. But what he does say, and what awakens you when you read his book, is that Britain... And so many parts of Britain, so many buildings in Britain, so many institutions in Britain are rooted in colonialism. And so much of the wealth that this country has, so much of the feudal aristocracy of this country is rooted in colonialism. And I'm, I'm not saying that everyone was a slave owner, but captains of industry, they made their fortunes in various ways, but the predecessors to the captains of industry who were you know, these colonial overlords who really put their name to so many buildings and who built so many cities. Mm. A lot of the architecture of the cities, a lot of what surrounds us in the United Kingdom is coming from that. And we just need to be aware of that. It's not a question of going and throwing tomatoes or, or stink bombs, or it's not an incitation to violence. It's just, again, raises awareness. Amazing. Well, that's all we have time for today. Farah, thank you so much for your time. And thank you for your book, Takedown, uh, which I highly recommend. It's a fascinating look at the power dynamics in the art market today and the challenges this industry is going through. Farah, thank you for your time. Thank you. Farah's favorite book that I'd probably never heard of was Venice is a Fish by Tiziano Scarpa, published in 2008. It's a lyrical exploration of the parts of the city that traditional guidebooks won't show you. The best book that she has read in the last 12 months was David Smith, The Art and Life of a Transformational Sculptor by Michael Brenson, published in 2022. It's a biography of a titanic sculptor who helped spark a love for the plastic arts in the U.S. art scene. The book that she would take to a desert island was in Search of Lost Time by Marcel Proust, published in 1913. It's a seven-volume series, 
And it's absolutely a phenomenal series. Great prose, great look at the creation of art, and absolutely one of my top recommendations. And finally, the book that changed your mind was Empire Land by Satnam Sanghera, published in 2021, which offers a fresh critique of the history of British colonialism. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Lit with Charles. If you have any suggestions or comments, you can always DM me on my Instagram account at Lit with Charles. I try to reply to all my DMs. If you enjoyed this episode, you should definitely subscribe or follow me. And more importantly, tell your friends and family.